Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and it looks like we might actually finish the chapter this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Some of you said, boy, you took a long time in chapter 7. You didn't take very long in chapter 8. Well, there are 13 verses in chapter 8, and there are over 30 verses in chapter 7. That does make a difference. Handling the gray areas of life. This is the third part of this message. We have seen in chapter 8 as Paul continuing to answer questions that began back in chapter 7 that we don't have. That again makes it very difficult when you have the answers but you don't have the questions. I was thinking as I was studying along the same line. Remember Dwight L. Moody was speaking once and he walked up to the platform and the little piece of paper said, Fool! And he made this statement. He said, you know, I've been in many places. People write me a note and forgot to sign it. This is the first time ever that somebody signed it and forgot to write it. (laughs) But in a similar way, we don't have the questions. We just have the answers that Paul has given. Now, there are many things about the Christian life that just aren't as clear as we would like for them to be. Some people take license in those areas. Well, Paul is dealing with one of these areas in chapter 8. And I'll tell you, if you'll pay attention to the principles of what he's saying here, it fits any gray area of life when it's not as clear in the Scriptures as you want it to be. For instance, shall I take a drink? Shall I not take a drink? Shall I go to a dance? Shall I not go to a dance? Uh, Shall I do this? Shall I not do that? Well, it's not in the Scriptures. Okay. Make sure you take what Paul has said in chapter 8 and apply this to whatever gray area you want to apply it to. He's dealing with eating meat sacrificed to idols. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Now, I hope we've made this clear. I keep saying in a different way each time to make sure we grasp it. And that is this. To the pagan Corinthian, this meat sacrificed to idols was considered a delicacy. Man, you go in the grocery store and that would be put over here in the high price meat. This is, this is a delicacy. Why? Because in their pagan beliefs, now pagan, remember, pagan beliefs, they thought that the demons were trying to get inside of you and as a result of that, they finally figured in their own human reasoning that the way the demons could do that was attach themselves to the food that you eat. <laughs> so when you took the food that you're going to eat to the idol's and sacrificed it that cleansed the food of any demonic influence. Therefore, the the food sacrificed to idols was a delicacy. You wanted this kind of food. Well, 
Not, not only the one who's doing the sacrificing would get a portion of that sacrifice to take home or do with what he wanted to, but the priest would also get a portion. And more often than not, the priest could not eat it all for all the people coming to sacrifice. So they would take that sacrificed meat to the idol and take it across the street, as particularly the temple of Apollo, right sitting right in the marketplace of Corinth. They'd take it across the street, sell it to the vendor. Now it became public property, and if you had the money, you could buy meat sacrificed to idols. So it was being served all over the city, uh, particularly in celebrations and feasts. This was the delicacy. This was what you would want to, to, to use. Well, in the culture of Corinth, believers probably were confronted with having to eat this meat on countless occasions. The $64,000 question was, however, should we eat it? Or should we not eat it? We're believers now, and we don't do that kind of thing. And, of course, uh, some of them said, yes, absolutely, make mine medium well. Which, I mean, there's no problem. They knew who they were in Christ. They knew the message of grace. And they knew what you ate or didn't eat had nothing to do with your standing with God. That's in Christ Jesus. That's where our standing is. There is, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. They understood that. But there was another group of believers who says, no, 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 no way, no way. I can't eat that because it causes me to, to be drugged back into my past. And they felt like that when they would eat it, that it was somehow defiling their conscience. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Two groups, all of believers. One says, hey, there's nothing wrong with it. The other one says, wait a minute, I see problems here. Look at verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, however, not all men have this knowledge. Now, the knowledge he's talking about is about uh, the, the fact that idols are nothing. The fact that eating food sacrificed to idols wouldn't mean nothing. He said, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, conscience being weak, is defiled. Paul said, we know that, that idols are nothing, but, but some have not yet grasped that eating food sacrificed to idols has nothing to do with your standing before God. And these that do not understand think they're defiling their conscience. Now, before I go any further, I want to slow down a bit and talk to you about the word conscience. Do we understand the conscience that even a non-believer has? We need to understand that. It's the word found there in verse 7. It's the word synesis. Thank you, Wayne. Uh, it means to be conscious of or inwardly aware of something that is whether or not it is morally right or morally wrong. It comes from the word sinido, meaning together, and evo, which means to see and fully perceive. Now, there's something inside of every one of us, even the people that are lost, and you know you have it when you're forced to make a choice. There's an inner process that's involved, and you, you perhaps, if you'll think through it, realize that there really is. Immediately, the conscious comes forward as an inner witness, and screaming at you says, yes, it's right, no, it's wrong, whatever it is. It's something inside of you giving you that inner witness as to what is morally right and morally wrong. And if a person chooses to go against his conscience, then what happens is he ends up feeling guilty because he's defiled his conscience. Now, the conscience is affected by what the person knows and what they understand from what they've been taught, either from people around them or in their culture. This is why many people in pagan cultures don't have the same conscience as those who grew up in moral societies, etc. And so they may not, not think something is morally wrong or, or morally right the same way others would think that way. But what I want you to see is everyone has a conscience, whether they're lost or whether they're saved. Now, 
We as believers have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. That's why it's so important for us to be up under the authority of God's Word. When we're up under the Word of God, the Holy Spirit takes the Word and enlightens our conscience. And to the degree we're willing to let our minds be renewed by the Word, our conscience is affected by that. By truth it's affected. And the more it's enlightening, then the more it responds at the way God would have it to respond. For instance, there in believers, there are some people who have never learned the message of grace. Uh, some people have, think they know it, but they use it as license, which is what we're dealing with in chapter 8. Other people have come to fully understand. They've come out of legalism or whatever, and they realize, wait a minute, what am I doing? I'm not obeying a set of rules. I'm surrendering to the one who already has obeyed that set of rules. I can't accomplish anything Christ has not already accomplished in me, and I'm living up now under his enabling power in my life. Some people understand that and have a good grasp of that. Others in the body of Christ don't have that grasp of it. They're still up under the law. They're still living according to the rules. I was serving in church recreation years ago, and I don't know if you know anything about church recreation. We had a gymnasium, and about 15 years I spent doing that before I went into the pastorate. Youth and recreation, I had youth and all the retreats and the camps and the ball leagues and all that kind of stuff. When I went to a particular church while I was serving in that field, they had a set of rules for when you skated in the gymnasium. That's where the floor was. We'd skate on it, Grandwood floor, so you could pretty much stand the pressure of those skates. They had a rule that women who came down to the church, none of them could ever wear slacks. And if you were going to skate, you had to skate in, in, in a dress. Never skate in slacks. Now, let me just, let me ask you a question, ladies. Would you rather fall on a pair of skates in a dress or would you rather fall with a pair of slacks? Now, who in the world, it's the way I thought about it, is the dummy that came up with this rule? Well, I began to track it back, and I had to grow a little bit more sensitive here. It was one of the senior staff members of the church that had put that rule in there because he grew up understanding that when you came to church, and if you were a woman, you never wore a pair of slacks. Now, what we have here is a difference and a failure to communicate. On one side, we've got a person who loves God as much as anybody in this room, and he believes that it's wrong for a woman to wear slacks. On the other side, you've got people that understand grace and understand a little bit more sensitively, sensitively what, what the woman's needs are, and if you're coming, and, and, and the whole thing begins to grow towards an impasse. That's what we're dealing with here. That's exactly what we're dealing with in chapter Eight. Now, it's interesting how the conscience can be seared by the lost man. I don't find out where it's a saved man, but I do find it where it's a lost man. Paul speaks of the false teacher who has seared his own conscience. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 2, and the reason I don't say for the saved man, the Holy Spirit of God lives in us to make sure we don't sear our conscience by the consequences he brings of sin that we choose to do. But in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 2, speaking of the false teachers, he says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And the idea of seared is it's the word, we get the word cauterized from. In other words, these are people who in their own conscience, before they ever got, could have been saved, they knew something was morally right or morally wrong, but they continued to act against it to the point that finally they, they produced scars that hardened that conscience. It's kind of like what I heard years ago of the Indian. The Indian said that the conscience is in within one's heart. It's like a giant arrow with sharp points and it's turning all the time. And every time it turns, it, it cuts and it hurts and it pricks you so that you know something is wrong. 
But the Indian said that if you continue to ignore it, it continues to grow, go along, and it will, after a while, the places that it has cut and the places that it has hurt have become seared and they become hardened and no longer does it have an effect within someone's life. So a lost people, you can understand why some people in the, in the world, even though they have a conscience that what's morally right and morally wrong to whatever degree can sear that conscience and it becomes so hard that they can not even respond to truth. Well, the conscience alone, even though it's enlightened by God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, is not a guarantee that a believer is going to act properly. And I'll tell you why. And that's what Paul's dealing with here in chapter 8. Go over, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 5. And I want to show you what Paul says must be first, even before a conscience that is rightfully enlightened. Let me show you what must be a mix there. It's got to be this mix. And this is the whole context of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 5, he says, but the goal of our instruction, he's speaking to Timothy now, his, his son in the faith, he says, the goal of our instruction is love, now watch, from a pure heart. That's got to be there first. You see, when I'm surrendered to Christ and the Holy Spirit of God is producing fruit in me, that is not shown by an enlightened conscience first. It's shown, first of all, by a love that only God can produce. And Paul says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. And he adds something to it. A good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, it's not the enlightenment of the conscience that is so important to Paul. What's important to him is love from a pure heart. Then a good conscience. You see, Way back in verse 1 of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, Paul's already laid this principle down. And he says, knowledge makes arrogant. It causes one to be puffed up and insensitive. But love edifies. Love builds up. You've got to have love mixed with knowledge. Now, it is this truth that Paul is dealing with in Corinth. There were those who understood the message of grace their conscience was not defiled in any way if they went to a feast or whatever situation and they ate whatever meat was put in front of them. They're under grace. Don't worry about it. But, there were, but the problem was they flaunted that in front of the weaker Christians who had not yet come to that place in their walk. And it is to this arrogant group that Paul has been speaking trying to get them to understand. I don't care how right you are about being under grace. What I care about is Where's the love that wraps around what you say you understand? So that's the context that we're dealing with. Paul refers to what they know and they're right. Verse 4, he says in verse 8, Therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there's no God but one. But again, the problem is you don't have the love mixed with what? You know, they had no sensitivity to the weaker brother. See, this is the group you have to watch. This is the group you have to watch. The ones who catch it real fast. You know, when I was, especially younger, I'm, I'm learning this more and more as I get older, but when I was younger, it seemed like as soon as I got a hold of a truth, I didn't really care how it bothered you, make you sad, mad, or glad. I'm going to tell you regardless of any sensitivity whatsoever as to where someone might be. I'm still having to learn that. Are you? It's not just what you know. It's the love that's mixed in with what you know that is so very 
important. And Paul documents this in verse 9. Here's his whole purpose statement of, of chapter 8. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And a stumbling block there is a, a significant word. It will come up later in our text. Three things we want to look at today as we continue to see of dealing with the gray areas. Three things about this love and knowledge mixed together. First of all, I want you to show you the damage that knowledge without love can cause. Now, this is important. Paul's going to start showing you now, okay, I've been telling you. Now, let me show you what can happen when you don't have this love mixed with that knowledge. He gives his own, he gives some real strong personal examples to them. In verse 10, For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Now look, at, he just develops a scenario for us here. I want us to look at it. He says, for if someone sees you who have knowledge, the word if is the word yon. There are two words for if in the Greek language. This is the word that means this is probably going to happen. Matter of fact, it probably already has happened. This, this is very close to a certainty here. This is most likely going to happen to you. So you're going to be someplace and somebody's going to see you eating meat, sacrificed to idols. He says, if someone sees you who has knowledge. In other words, uh, he, I'm talking to this group that understands. You understand that eating, eating meat sacrificed to idols is, is okay. You're under grace. I don't know what's happening here. You're under grace. <laughs> Therefore, you're free to eat it. All right? Evidently, from the situation Paul is presenting, the believer is invited to a celebration of some sort, just like we shared earlier. He, he's there, and, and now here, here's the situation that's developing. They're in the idol's temple. Now, the, the temples of the idols there were made for these kinds of things. They were not just, most of them were pagans, and they had huge open halls that the people would come to, to to celebrate in these feasts. They even had kitchens that would supply, and sometimes they were done outdoors. This is exactly what was going on. From the context, there's a meal of some kind, there's a celebration, whatever, and there's meat sacrificed to idols. The enlightened believer is sitting there at the feast, chowing down. Man, he's not worried about anything. And Paul says in verse 10, For someone sees you who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple. Now, someone sees him eating. Who is this someone? Well, the verse describes him as one being weak, and obviously to his faith. And also the next verse describes him as a brother. So we have to look at him not as an unbeliever, although this principle would certainly fit that, but we have to look at him as a weaker brother in the faith. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak. Now, let's stop right there. The word weak, asthenis. It's the word here it refers to weak in his understanding. One who doesn't understand his position in Christ. One whose conscience, conscience has not yet been enlightened. So here he is. He sees you, however. You've got it down. And you understand these things. And you're at this feast. Everybody's been invited. Might it be a family occasion. Might be a whatever. Might be in a wedding or something. And he looks over there and sees you. And you're eating that meat sacrificed to an idol. He says, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things? sacrificed to idol. Now look out. Paul in using the phrase, his conscience being strengthened is in no way inferring something good. No way at all. Although it reads that way. Look out. What is happening here is not good. Let me, the Greek here 
is, is, the, is the only way to unlock what he's saying, and it's very difficult to bring it out into another language. But the word being strengthened is not what you think it is. It doesn't mean what you think it does. Everywhere else in Scripture that it's used, it's, it's used in a good way, but not here. The word is the word ikdomeo. It means building a house, a builder. To build, to construct, to erect. Usually you think of this word as something good. Man, what you're doing is strengthening him and causing him to be built up. That's not what Paul is saying here. Here Paul does not seem to be making a statement saying, Hey, you went to the feast. Hey, you ate the meat. Hey, your brother saw you and you strengthened him by eating that meat. That's not what he's saying. No, no. In fact, it's more of a question he's asking, which is, is this the way you seek to build up your brother, knowing that he's weak, knowing that you're strong, are you going to go and flaunt your knowledge in front of him, thinking that somehow that's going to build him up, thinking that somehow that's going to grow him up in grace? In reality, Paul is saying this is not a construction, this is a demolition. You're doing more destroying of that man than you are building up of that man. He doesn't understand what you understand, and you know it. So why do you do what you do? There's no way in the world this is building up a brother in Christ. You know, the damage that is done. Now, you have to be careful here. You have to be very careful. When you know that this is an offense to a brother. Now, listen, if you live your life trying not to offend someone, <laughs> help yourself. Because there's some people who have the gift of being offended. And I don't care what you do, they're going to be offended by it. That's not what we're talking about, not at all. Now, get that out of your mind, because every one of you can start pointing fingers. Uh-huh, you did. Uh-huh, yeah. No, it's when you know that your brother thinks differently, but you take your liberty and you flaunt it in his face. That's the context of what Paul is talking about. Matter of fact, when you don't know and many times are free under the grace of God, that might be more strengthening to your brother than cowering down to everything that's wrong under grace. But when you know, when you know your brother does not have that understanding, that changes everything. I remember we went over to Romania one year, and I said, Costello, I don't have to take a tie, do I? I think ties are demonic, and I'm trying to track that back. But I honestly believe somebody didn't know Christ came up with them. And although I, you see me in one all the time, that's not what I enjoy wearing. If I have my choice, well, you probably wouldn't know what my choice is, but... I just don't like to wear a tie. And I said, Costello, come on, we're traveling a long way. Everything's going to be wrinkled. Don't make me wear a tie. He said, Wayne, you have to wear a tie. I said, why do I have to wear a tie? He said, because they don't understand grace like you understand it. And the very fact that you stand before them that way without their understanding of where you're coming from will cause immediately them to turn you off when you stand before them. Oh, I understand. Now I understand it even better from teaching 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You know, when Kay, I've always talked about Kay Arthur when she was over in Romania and didn't have any makeup on. And I've said that so many times, y'all know the story. But you know one of the things I really respect about her as a woman who was willing not to wear makeup, and it made her look 110 years old, but not to wear makeup. <laughs> in a country where people didn't understand yet what it really meant to live up under grace. I respect that. I respect that a lot. At first, I thought it was kind of silly. But the more I study and the more I, my mind's becoming renewed, I, I understand that now. That's, that's, a, that's a huge step of being willing not to flaunt your liberty in front of somebody who is a weaker brother. Paul goes on and explains, verse 11. He says, For through your knowledge, he who is weak 
is ruined. <laughs> See, there's no way he's saying anything good in verse 10. He's saying, hey, you're destroying. He's ruined. He uses the same word, by the way. The brother for whose sake Christ died. You ruin your weaker brother. The word there is apolumi. It means to be destroyed. Now, we're not talking about e eternal de destruction. But what we are talking about is destroying him in his conscience. His conscience is telling him that he must not do this. And he sees you, and therefore if he does what you do based on what you do, not based on what God has shown him in his own conscience, you have asked him to commit moral suicide. He's gone against what his conscience has said to him. The word for ruin, again, is the word that means that, that destruction that comes within. It's like, it's like he begins to cave in. He can't handle the guilt of going against what his conscience has told him. Paul is saying, you see, without the love of Christ mixed with what you understand about grace, you've ruined your brother. And you could stand up in a classroom and teach it until days, days long. And you're right. But the problem is you don't have love mixed with that knowledge. And you don't know when to be sensitive to the brother who doesn't understand what you understand. Paul goes on to say in verse 11, For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Now, boy, if you, if you have to back off and look at this very, very carefully. Here, the wonderful truth comes out of this. First of all, you don't love your weaker brother enough to stop doing what you're doing so that he will not be caused to be ruined. You don't, you're not going to give up your freedom in Christ. You've made your freedom a right, and you're no longer sensitive to your weaker brother. But the second thing Paul is saying is, you don't love Christ enough to do it. Not only do you not love your brother enough, you don't love Christ enough. And if you love Christ enough, you would look to see what he did for you, much less your weaker brother. He not only emptied himself of his divine glory, he came to this earth in the form of a bondservant and was obedient unto death. Look at the price he paid for all the people down here. You're not even willing to give up eating meat, sacrificed to idol for the sake of your brother. You don't love your brother and you don't love Christ by what you're doing. Because you're taking your liberty, making it a right, and breaking your brother with it. Well, this is the damage caused by not having knowledge mixed with love. That's the problem. If I'm not living attached to Christ, if His Spirit is not producing that love in me and in you, by the way, that love is not what you may sometimes think it is, but it's what God says it is. And that love then encases the freedom and the truth that we understand. That's how our weaker brother can be built up and not destroyed by the way we live. So the damage, instead of building your brother up, you tear him down. Secondly, the danger of not having love mixed with your knowledge. Verse 12, and thus by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now look at the charge that Paul brings against them. He says, you guys, you've got it down. Yes, you're right. I, absolutely right. I taught you. You understood. Your, your conscience has been enlightened. However, without this love, there's three accusations against you at least. First of all, by doing this, by going to that feast and eating that in front of the brother that is weak, knowing what you're doing, he says, by doing that, you've sinned against them. He says, and thus, by sinning against the brethren. Present active. This is not something that you did without thinking uh, that, or without knowledge, that happens to all of us. There are many times we have become offense to somebody. Matter of fact, James, speaking of the tongue, says we all offend in many ways. And so there's not ever a day you're going to live if somebody's not offended. But when you're aware of what's going on around you and you're aware of the weaker brother 
and you still willfully flaunt what you understand about grace in front of him, then Paul says you've sinned against him. And that's more of an attitude than an act because it's in the present tense. That belligerent attitude is what he's talking about. You're sinning against your brother more than just you've sinned against him. This has totally missed what God would have desired in your life towards that brother. The word sin is the word hamartia. Hamartia means to miss the mark. And the flesh is what causes us to miss the mark. If we're attached to Christ, Christ in us makes us sensitive to the weaker brother around us. It's not something you have to sit down with a list every morning and say, who can I offend, who can I offend? No, that's not it. You just get up, get up in the morning, put your eyes on Christ, attach yourself to Him, and He'll give you that divine sensitivity. And you'll hit the mark with your brother. But when you don't live that way, and you flaunt what you know in front of His face, that misses the mark completely, and you sin against your brother. Secondly, you wounded your brother's conscience. Now remember that conscience. It has to be enlightened. The conscience is enlightened according to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. You wound him. The word wound is an interesting word. It's tupto, to wound. It means to strike, to smite with a hand or a stick or another instrument repeatedly. It's like you took a stick and walked over and beat this man's conscience by flaunting what you understood about grace in his face. But most importantly, the third thing is, not only have you sinned against him, not only have you wounded his conscience, beat it. I mean, like with a stick, you've beat it. But thirdly, most importantly, you have sinned against Christ. Your action, willfully understanding that this weaker brother is there, willfully flaunting what Christ has given you under grace, taking your license and making it a right, and, and, and sticking it in the face of your brother has caused you to sin against Christ. In other words, your action didn't just strike that brother. That action by striking your brother struck Christ. Now I'll tell you what, this is when you begin to get your attention. It's not just the brother that's the matter here. It's, it's sinning against Christ. You see, how can a person that's a Christian continue to live in the joy that God wants to give to him if he's living with an attitude that is causing him to constantly sin against Christ? The thing's backfiring on him. It's not working the way God says it ought to work. To sin against a brethren is serious enough, but to sin against Christ, that's the, that's the important thing. Now their folly is reacting back upon them. Now, to what degree do they sin against Christ? And to what degree are there consequences? Now, listen to me. Paul is strangely quiet. As a student of the Word, hauntingly quiet. One of the things I look for in Scripture is what it says and also what it doesn't say. He doesn't get into what it's going to cost you. He doesn't get into the consequences. He doesn't get into the degree of how you have struck Christ by that attitude he just backs off and gets real quiet. And I'll tell you what, when Scripture gets real quiet, it causes me when I'm studying to get real quiet. Just exactly how far, what are the consequences of doing that? He doesn't say. That's left with, between you and the Lord. To what degree? He doesn't say. J. Vernon McGee, a man that I used to, he, you know, he's still on the radio. He's been dead for how long? I mean, he, he was nine days older than dirt when he died. And how long has he been dead? And he's still on the radio. You can pick him up. And, I love to listen to J. Vernon McGee. Do you know that rascal had about, I don't know how many THD degrees, but yet when he preaches, you think that he's a guy that doesn't have any education, came right out of South Carolina somewhere. But he, uh, he's on the radio. And J. Vernon McGee tells the story that one time he was with a friend of his who had just been converted from Islamic faith into Christianity. He was from the Middle East. Of course, the, the, whole, the, the look and all the darker skin. 
And they went to a meeting one day, actually a celebration type of thing, and it was food and everything was out there. And by the time they got through the line, there were so many people, all of them were Christians. When they got to, up to the table, the only thing that was left was pork. Now you have to understand in the Jewish faith as well as in the Islamic faith, pork is considered to be an unclean animal, a dirty animal. So when he walked up, he said, ma'am, don't you have anything else? Don't you have any chicken? Don't you have any beef? Don't you have any lamb? She said, we did have it, but everybody's gone through and we've eaten it all up. She said, but I've got this wonderful ham. I got this great pork here. And he said, I tell you what, I just, I just choose not to eat it. And the young girl who was doing the serving was a little bit more enlightened as, as, as she thought than he was, but it turned out he was much more enlightened than she was. And she said, sir, I'm surprised at you. You've been a speaker at this conference and now we're having this celebration. You've been speaking about grace and you ought to know that it doesn't matter if you eat pork or not. Go on, have you some. It's good stuff. He said, ma'am, you don't understand. He said, I go home every year to my family that's over in the Far East. And he says, when I get there, every time I go in the door, my father asks me one question, only one question. And he knows that I'm a believer. He knows that I'm different. But the only question he asked me is, have the infidels in America taught you yet to eat the old filthy hog? And he said, so far I've been able to say no. And he's let me in and I'm having an opportunity to share my faith with him. But if I ate this pork today, I know that he would reject me at the front door of my house and it would kill any witness I could have with him. So he said, I choose to take what is a freedom and lay it down so it might become a blessing to my father one day when he comes to know Christ. That's the heartbeat of what Paul's saying. That's exactly the heartbeat of what Paul's saying. Not looking at your freedom as a right, looking at it as a privilege, but being mixed with the love of Christ which makes you sensitive, knowing when to let it down and let it go for the sake of others around you. Particularly his narrow context are the Christian brothers. But this also affects those who are lost in the same way particularly when they're related. Well, thirdly, we've seen the damage and the danger. The third thing I want you to see is the desire of one whose knowledge is mixed with love. Now, this is Paul going to give his own personal feelings here, as he does all the way through 1 Corinthians. He says in verse 13, therefore, he says. Anytime you see a therefore, look to see what it's there for. If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. Now, even though Paul uses himself here and his own conviction as an example, he gives us a greater principle that we're going to pull out of this. I mean, an eternal principle covers every area of life. He gives his own conviction, therefore if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Now, he uses the first person singular, speaks of himself. But the word for food there, you've got to understand, is the word broma. Broma is that which you have to chew, and that's why it's translated in most places, solid food or meat. Like you have the milk of the word and the meat of the word, broma would be the word for meat. And so what he's talking about here is meat. Now, secondly, it is meat in his context that is sacrificed to idols. That's what he speaks of here. If meat sacrificed to idols is going to cause my brother to stumble, I will never eat that meat again. The word for stumble is the word scandalon. It's the trigger that causes a trap to go off. In other words, a trap is already set. And so a person with an unenlightened conscience, even though he's a believer, has the trap already set. He can easily be offended. He can easily sin against his own conscience if he hasn't come to the place to understand what it means to be up under grace. So therefore, it's like a mousetrap. You ever been around a mousetrap? 
every time, about this time every year. Now it's going to be a cold spell. It'll be in about another three weeks. The field mice love to start coming in and, and just, uh, for fall of the year and spring of the year, every, every year it happens this way, especially when it gets warm, it gets cold again, and, and they start coming in. And over Stephanie and Eric's house, they've had already four. <laughs> I finally got him, though, take the cheese off the thing and put peanut butter on it. They, they, can't, they can't handle the peanut butter. The cheese they figured out a long time ago. But you, when you set that trap, how many times have you ever had a finger mashed by that trap setting? Anybody in here besides myself? Raise your hand. Anybody else? Yeah. Okay. Some of you just didn't want to tell the truth. You pull that little trigger back and you set the thing on it. And right there's a little, little uh, flat area. That's where you put the food. That's on that trigger. Now that mouse comes up and says, woohoo. And he comes up. And as soon as he touches that, puts any weight on that little trigger, the trap comes down. In other words, the word here is not the, for stumbling block is not the word for trap. It's already there. The world is full of traps, but it becomes a trigger that's going to cause that trap to go off. And what he says is, if you take your liberty in Christ, if you take the message of grace and you make it some kind of fleshly right and you flaunt it in front of your brother's face, he can't take it and it's going to cause that trap to go off and immediately you'll cause him to sin against his conscience and you have destroyed what you could have otherwise built up. You're tearing him down. You're not helping him. So he says, if food causes my brother to stumble. Paul puts it in the most serious context. And he says, hey, my, myself personally, I will never eat meat sacrificed to idols if I know I'm in a place and there's a brother there who's going to be caused to stumble by my doing that. Now, by giving us his own personal example, he sets an eternal principle for all of us. Now, I want to tell you something. <laughs> I know some of y'all out here, I, I know because you've said it to me, so don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. When it comes in the area of drinking, <laughs> have I ever preached on drinking since I've been here? No, I've preached the Word of God, and if it fell there, let it fall. We're not preaching issues, we're preaching Christ and His Word. However, for whoever's sitting in here this morning saying, it's all right to take a drink when I want to take a drink because the Bible doesn't say that, it says don't be drunk with wine. I want you to understand something, sir. Under grace, you're right. But the way you just said it means you have no love mixed with it, which means you have no sensitivity to the weaker brother who might be sitting right beside you. That's what governs our life. Not what is legally correct under grace, but what is right under the love that God places within us. He makes us sensitive to the people that are around us. Some of the people you think they're the most wise when it comes to grace may be the ones that are weakest. They just don't understand yet. So you say, well, Wayne, good grief. Do I get up in the morning, write me out a list and say, good grief, this offends somebody, this offends somebody else, this offends somebody else, and this offends somebody else. No. You do exactly what everything in Corinthians has told us. Get up in the morning and attach yourself to Christ. And get so attached to Him to where the love of the Holy Spirit of God begins to manifest itself in your life. That will make you sensitive to your brother who's sitting there in front of you who may not be as strong as you are. And He'll let you know. You'll have a check. It'll be in your conscience. Your conscience will come forth. And your conscience will say, don't do it. Now come on, get away from me, devil. Couldn't be my conscience because my conscience has been enlightened. Oh, yes, it is your conscience, the Holy Spirit of God working in it, saying to you, don't do it. And you may not know for until you get to heaven why you didn't do it. But there was a brother standing right there beside you. And that brother was watching you. You know, the interesting thing is, we're the only Bible some people will ever read. 
And we've got to be so cautious to make sure we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God. I wonder, let me just throw it out this way. If you had to sit down and write out a, a, on a page a, a, what you think my weaknesses are. <laughs> I know you need a whole notebook. I understand it. I wonder if one of them that you would write down would be a tremendous sensitivity to the ways people speak to me. I wonder if you even knew that. Oh, you don't sound like that when you preach. I know, because up here nobody's saying anything to me. I'm doing all the talking. <laughs> it's amazing how that's a weakness in my own flesh. And even though I know the truth to be dead to self, God hadn't finished with me yet. And people who say, well, good grief, Wayne certainly has that conquered in his life. Don't even know. In that area, I'm a weaker brother. So you see, you've got to be so empowered by the Spirit of God that He gives you that sensitivity. You don't know who you're talking to. You don't know who's watching you. That's the whole point of what Paul said. But a man who understands grace and doesn't have love mixed with it is a bigger enemy in the body than somebody who doesn't understand grace and still living up under the law. You know, Paul dealt with this beautifully. If you want to do some more study on it, I don't have the time to do it, but in Romans chapter 14, in verse 2 and 3. Look back in just verse 2 and 3. Remember that? We, we studied this together. We took a long time on it. But if you want to go back and study it, particularly verses 13 through 23 of chapter 14, but I want to show you just two verses and see, and perhaps now it'll make it come clear to you what he was saying in, in the epistle to the Romans. All this is covered there. <clears throat> he says in verse 2 of Romans 14, One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let him not, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. Now watch. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has accepted him. And then you go to verse 13 to 23, and it just begins to bring out all the beautiful things that fill in the blanks of what he's answering of a question in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Knowledge alone is nothing. It is nothing. Nothing. Knowledge combined with love is everything. You can't just have the love. You can't just have the knowledge. You've got to have both of them. We must protect the weak until they too become strong. Negatively, we must not offend their conscience. Positively, we must bear with them and instruct them. Don't leave them there. Bear with them and instruct them. Bottom line is to be attached to Christ, as we said and to live sensitive to His Spirit day by day. Years ago, we had a person in another church, another area where I pastored, come to me one day, and he said, Wayne, I've got to have some help. I'm a believer, okay? And he gave me his testimony and how God had worked in his life. He said, but I've gone back into alcoholism. I came out of it, and I've gone back into it. And I said, you've gone back into it? He said, man, when I was saved, it was like God just took even the desire away from me. And I said, well, what in the world got you back into it? He said, and he came out of another denomination. He said, I was at my priest's house. And he asked me if I wanted a glass of wine. And I said, sir, you don't really understand where I've come from. And the priest said, oh, come on, man. I'm just asking you if you want a glass. We're under grace. And he took that glass of wine. And as a result of a priest being insensitive to the weaker brother, he went right back into that alcoholism and now was having all kinds of severe problems 
wanting to be delivered from it, wanting to find help in it, but his whole problem started with a person who's supposed to understand the message of grace. That's the point. That's it. Well, I tell you what, these, these scriptures don't get any easier. Now we're going in chapter 9. In chapter 9, Paul's going to give the wonderful example of himself, the whole chap chapter. I mean, he's going to talk about being free under grace, but how he's restricted himself. And I think you'll enjoy it. It'll really make chapter 8 come alive to you as we see his own example as he lived before others. I'll tell you what, this is not one of those messages that you sit there and say, yeah, I hope such and such is listening to this. And I want you to know, if you have even had that thought, you need to repent of it and get your own life right with God. This is not an amen message. This is an oh me message. Let me go get by myself and get attached to Christ so that I can become sensitive to the weaker brother I didn't even know was there. And that's the way we ought to learn how to live. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.